Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 16, being recorded on Wednesday, March 2nd. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, how are you doing? Happy Sweet 16. Happy Sweet 16 to you. I am doing well. How about yourself? Doing great. It's uh, spring weather here in Raleigh, so we've been enjoying a little sunshine and warmer weather. I'm a little jealous. I am in Toronto where it is not spring weather. It's going to be zero degrees Fahrenheit tomorrow, and... They got 20 centimeters of snow yesterday, which I'm told is a lot of snow. That sounds like a lot of snow. We're doing this wrong, Scott, because what we should have been is in Barcelona for the Mobile World Congress. I was just going to ask you about that. Last week on the show, we talked about uh, some of the news coming out of there, and you had some folks uh, that attended. So I'd love to hear what's going on. Just as a recap for for everyone that foolishly missed last week's episode – the Barcelona Mobile World Congress it has become the biggest show for mobile technology. So here in the U.S., in Las Vegas in January, we have this big consumer electronics show. But the mobile guys have really put their weight behind this show in Barcelona every year. And that's where most of the new phones get launched. Um, that's where, you know, Samsung just launched their new flagship phone, which is now available for pre-order there. And uh, so that's where we go to see the real innovations in mobile. And relevant to our listeners, one of the the new initiatives is this software service for the mobile carriers called Mobile Connect. And the idea behind it is that it's a universal ID login system that's authenticated by the carriers. So in essence, because you're on a phone that has a subscription to a carrier, that hardware can be uniquely identified and, and it can use that identity as essentially your password for a whole variety of services, including a mobile wallet. So it essentially could enable universal login and it could enable like a very widely adopted universal mobile wallet uh, to enable people to pay for e-commerce goods. How um, So are, are the major carriers signed on and any other kind of launch partners of interest? None in the U.S. yet. So a number of carriers throughout Europe are part of the, the pilot program. And I, I think there are some countries where you can now like uh, use your mobile identity um, in a few e-commerce examples. And I'll, I'll uh, try to post some in the notes. But it's a relatively new standard. It hasn't been adopted yet, and it may not be. Um, but you know, in the U.S., we have a relatively small number of carriers that matter. So if we could get the the big three to adopt this, that that potentially could be a very useful tool to help address the the mobile gap that we talk about sometimes the the disparity between conversion rates on mobile devices and desktop devices. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. There's been this kind of ongoing battle between the carriers and the operating system providers where there's that highly publicized Verizon Google where Verizon wouldn't allow Google Wallet. Uh, It'd be interesting to see if the operating system guys kind of said, this is great, but we're going to keep it kind of down at the hardware layer and not surface it because it seems like it would be against their payment plans to adopt something like this unless I'm misunderstanding it. As I understand it, you should think of it as more of the authentication for a mobile wallet than the actual mobile wallet itself. Okay. And so the hope would be that 
whether you take you're using Samsung's wallet or Google's wallet or Apple's wallet, that this could be your universal password that that automatically logs you into that wallet to enable you to use it for payments. But uh, we'll have to see. I, I haven't gotten eyeballs on the demo at all myself yet. Cool. Anything else new? Uh, a couple little odds and ends. There, there was an interesting product that has some in-store retail use cases called Echos. And what this is, is it's sort of a digital version of the old um, ink stamps that you, you know, you might've seen that, you know, you could stamp urgent on a, on a document or something. They make these stamps that have conductive shapes on them so that a touchscreen can detect the pattern on the stamp. And they use the stamps as kind of a, a relatively highly secure uh, physical password. So imagine you're a retailer and you have some program where a customer can get points every time they visit your store, or maybe they can get their parking validated and you want to let them validate it through their mobile phone instead of a paper ticket or something like that. The retailer can have one of these physical Echos devices at the POS and you touch your touchscreen with this physical device and the software on your phone can quickly recognize that stamp and know that it's a unique stamp for that particular address and then give you some, you know, unique local uh, service or value or experience or whatever. So kind of like a, a physical QR code that works in reverse. The The stamp is at the physical location and your phone knows how to read it. Cool. Yeah, that sounds pretty neat. I certainly could imagine some loyalty applications where it might be interesting. And then the big trend in years past at this show, you would see the dramatically new form factors of phones, right? So, you know, hey, the screen now extends to the edge of the phone, or there's a second low-power display when the case is closed, or this phone has a display on the front and back of the phone, you know, or all these different form factors that manufacturers were coming up with to be unique. And at this year's show, apparently there were no significant new form factors. There was a big trend towards bigger and bigger screens, and higher and higher resolution on the traditional size screens. And so at a macro level, what that means is we're getting a much bigger variety of resolutions on the on the screens, and therefore a much bigger uh, variety of resolutions in the web browsers on those mobile devices, or what we call the viewport resolutions. And so the, that's getting more and more fragmented. And so the, this kind of old world where you either used responsive design or server-side adaption, and you had a couple breakpoints where you designed experiences for screens of different resolution, that's getting harder and harder to do because there are so many different resolutions that exist in the wild and are somewhat popular. So uh, it's, it's going to force everyone to get a lot better at uh, leveraging things like liquid layouts to have the content dynamically adjust to, to a variety of different viewports. Hmm. Yeah, it's already a real pain to kind of deal with all the different just Android kind of different resolutions out there. I, I, even more fragmentation is bad news for the industry, I think. Exactly. The, the saving grace at the moment, which I'm sure Android's hoping to turn around, is that while the Android ecosystem is way more fragmented, they disproportionately spend uh, way less on e-commerce. So, so the iOS devices, of which there are far fewer – Still represent something like you know more than seventy percent of all e-commerce spending in the U.S. So uh, often developers focus on those iOS resolutions 
and and leave the unwashed masses on the on the Androids to fend for themselves. Yeah, and last week we we briefly talked on the Samsung S7 is coming out and uh, it has Marshmallow and um, I've been playing with a Marshmallow phone of uh, one of the Nexus ones and and it feels like it's finally up to kind of the fit and finish of an iPhone. So maybe this will be kind of the the generation of Android phones that start to break that that trend. But we'll have to kind of wait and see. Yeah, I certainly hope so. How about, um, so last week we talked about some of the fourth quarter results. There's a couple more that trickled in. And one I know that you were watching really closely was Target. What did you think about their uh, fourth quarter results? Very happy surprise if you're Target. Um, they were universally favorable. Uh, their same store sales, what we'd call comp sales, were up 1.9%. And to put that in perspective, Walmart's were, were was up about 0.6%. So about three times as big a growth as Walmart, which is very meaningful. More relevantly of your target, they've had this big focus on what they call signature categories. And so they've really put the emphasis on these six categories where they want to win. And the signature categories were up 6%, which is very meaningful. And it, it shows that they're getting good traction behind those those signature category initiatives. Um, they also announced that their foot traffic in the stores was up for the fifth consecutive quarter. So you know, we've we've heard from a lot of retailers that are seeing traffic go down, and particularly the mall-based retailers. We're we're hearing a lot about declining traffic, but th- you know, this is further evidence that that when you have the right stores in the right geographies, that it's not necessarily a universal trend that traffic's going down. Targets had increased traffic for five consecutive quarters, and then when we turn our attention to you know what's probably nearest and dearest to our heart in the e-commerce world. Uh, their Q4 e-commerce was up 34%. So that's growing faster than Amazon. The, again, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago, Walmart was up 8%, so it's uh, much faster growth than, than Walmart. Now, Target is starting at a much smaller base than uh, even Walmart and certainly than Amazon. So it is easier to grow. But this is the second year in a row that Target has had very meaningful growth. And, you know, they have been making very big investments in their e-commerce business. Um, and, you know, in particular, they've been making investments in their fulfillment and supply chain. They've they've enabled a bunch of capabilities around ship from store and better buy online pick up in store capabilities. And so they're they're crediting the in-store fulfillment with a lot of their e-commerce growth. They said that 30% of all their orders are now fulfilled from their stores. And uh, a slightly technical but interesting side note to that they're saying 40% of the orders that are fulfilled from stores would have been out of stocks in their fulfillment center. 40% of that 30% are orders they would not have gotten if they didn't have an ability to fulfill from stores. Cool. They didn't tell us what their overall percentage of BOPUS orders is, but they said that they set a record for for the highest percentage of online pickup in-store orders that they've ever had. And when you look across the whole year, they were up 31% for this year. So that's great growth. They were up 30% last year. So they even they had a great year last year and improved on it. Um, now their their CEO did say that they would grow 40% this year, which was a very aggressive plan. So 31% is, is definitely short of their 40% gro- goal. But I look at all of that, um, and it's a good story for Target. But my big takeaway when I look at uh, Target's success over the holiday period versus Walmart's relative lack of success. To me, the big difference between those two retailers is Target was very aggressive on promotions and very aggressive on free shipping. When you look at the last couple of years of their growth, 
tar- two years ago, Target had the most expensive shipping in the industry, and they 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 went from a hundred dollar threshold to a seventy five dollar threshold to a fifty dollar threshold to a thirty five dollar threshold, and over the holiday period, they had no threshold. So essentially, they gave away free shipping on everything. And Walmart, you know, really stayed pat with their fifty dollar threshold for free shipping. And the the rational argument there is. Gosh, the overwhelming majority of orders at Walmart are over $50, and so that shipping threshold really doesn't affect a very large number of orders. But it's clear that the psychology around saying shipping is free versus you have to earn shipping has a big impact on consumers. And in study after study, we we see that consumers are hardwired to expect free shipping and you know, Target's ability to aggressively promote this free shipping versus Walmart sticking with their their relatively consistent shipping pricing policy. You know, I'm sure Walmart was hoping to maintain margins a little bit more this holiday, but it seems like it really cost them the holiday in terms of, of shoppers. Was there anything um, from Target about, you know, some of these promotions like the Cyber Monday was, I forget, was it 15 or 20 percent off? It was, it was very aggressive. And then the free shipping, was there any indication like did they take a pretty massive margin hit from that or? Not entirely clear. They did say margins were down from last year. They were more aggressive with free shipping and more aggressive with promotions this year than last year. So it seems pretty clear uh, that they do take a margin hit. And it's obvious that they would when they give away more of those those promotions. But, you know, the magic question is, did they make it up in volume, you know, when you just look at the holiday period? And the even bigger question is, are they earning new customers as a result of that? Will those customers that came uh, over that holiday period and made their first purchase with free shipping, customers that they'll keep, and, you know, will they have a high lifetime value? Or, you know, are those relatively opportunistic customers that go back to Walmart as soon as uh, Target turns its uh, shipping threshold back on? Yeah, it'll be interesting. And, uh, maybe they actually save some of the money because um, when you ship from the store, frequently that can be very inexpensive if you've if you've done the right math and gotten a store that's near, you know, kind of in a zone one of where the consumer is. Exactly. Having a promotion that says free shipping is imperative in e-commerce these days. But, you know, we joke that there's 200 different ways to offer free shipping. And by far the best form of free shipping is free shipping to a store, right? So in-store pickup is free. And, you know, that both has a low cost to the retailer, the cost to get those goods to the store are already sunk, and it feels like free shipping to the consumer. And, of course, you have the likelihood of discovering other products to buy when you're in that store. You know, Macy's has shared some interesting statistics about their average orders 120% higher for buying line pickup and store orders than it is for ship to ship home orders when they when they get to attach those extra extra sales uh, to the to the order when the customer comes in the store so uh, for sure that's true and to your point when you only have to ship that stuff one zone the cost is lower and the products get there faster best buy famously switched over to to shipping from store uh, mid-2014, and they went from, on average, being two days slower shipping to Amazon to being one day faster than Amazon because they were they were shipping so many goods one zone versus shipping everything from their centralized fulfillment centers. Hmm, interesting. Cool. So awesome, uh, 
uh, kind of a report from Target. Uh, one that I follow really closely is um, because of my marketplace focus is Mercado Libre, also known Meli is their stock symbol, M-E-L-I, and they reported. Um, this is one that everyone was watching really closely because uh, Latin America, so, so just to orient folks, um, Mercado Libre operates a family of kind of sister marketplaces that are in most of the Latin American countries. Uh, the biggest one's Brazil, which is well over 50% of the size there. Um, other ones that are popular are Argentina, Colombia, Venezuela. Um, if you, if you, if there's a South American country, they operate a, a marketplace there. Um, they kind of split them into the Portuguese, which is more the Brazilian side, and then the Spanish-speaking ones. Uh, and they're also very popular in Mexico. Um, so uh, with the devaluation of a lot of the currencies there, everyone's been kind of wondering what's going to happen. So Argentina and Venezuela have been going through a lot of devalued currencies. Um, Brazil hasn't really devalued the real, but they have had a lot of economic turmoil and a lot of political turmoil. Um, economic has been largely driven by some of these commodities, uh, specifically like oil and that kind of thing that are under a lot of pressure right now. Um, so the Brazilian economy has slowed down pretty dramatically and it was on a torrid pace. So everyone's kind of watching um, that. Mercado Libre, I have found, is probably one of the best ways to kind of get a feeling for what's going on in Latin America. So it was a, it was a really strong result. So they, they grew six, 86% year-over-year constant currency, which is pretty amazing uh, from a GMV perspective. Uh, revenues for the marketplace grew 63%. Um, total revenues, they have a non-marketplace kind of a comparison shopping engine business that grew even faster at 79% kind of classifieds. Uh, the, uh, their payment system is very popular. And, and what you find in a lot of these countries is they don't have any infrastructure. So the marketplace company tends to have to build a lot of it, just like Alibaba has Alipay. Uh, they have Mercado uh, Pago is the name of the payment system. Uh, that is growing very rapidly uh, at about 80%. Um, and they're getting a fair amount of reach off of the marketplace, which is kind of interesting, kind of more of a PayPal model where you have the things going on the marketplace and then being used off the marketplace and other e-commerce sites. Um, they've also built a uh, fulfillment infrastructure, which is kind of a network of shipping solutions um, where the carriers join and they have three PLs. Uh, that has gotten pretty high penetration up to 70% in Brazil uh, and 50% in countries where it's available. So uh, good headwind there on these infrastructure investments they're doing, which are important to go. From a forecast perspective, they did, um, you know, that was a really good kind of fourth quarter result. Uh, the forecast is is a little step down in growth at 23%, which we would die for here in the U.S., of course. But, but you know, when you're coming off 86%, that's kind of a step down. Uh, and this is the, the headwinds of just the macroeconomic stuff. And um, stepping up to a 30,000-foot level, there's a firm called Web Shoppers, which is kind of like the com score of Brazil, if you will. Uh, and their forecast is really uh, for 15%. Uh, they forecasted in 2015 15% growth year over year. And then they see that slowing down to 8% for overall e-commerce in Brazil. So, you know, against that backdrop, Mercado Libre is doing very well. Things are slowing down a little bit in Brazil, though. I always, when I do my spiel about kind of global uh, e-commerce, I'm used to saying Latin America, specifically driven by Brazil, is the fastest growing, usually north over 30%. So it's an interesting period of time here where we're seeing that growth really come down because of the macroeconomic stuff. Um, and I think, you know, we, we don't cover it a lot on the podcast, but I think this is a good kind of just entree to, to throw out there. Um, when you when you do think about international e-commerce, 
Uh, it looks now like China is slowing down. It's hard to get good numbers out of there because uh, you know there's uh, everyone knows the Chinese government inflates the GDP numbers out of China. Um, I haven't seen any new research out of China on growth. Um, I did see some Forrester numbers that that did take it down to kind of more of a fifteen percent kind of an U.S. kind of rate of growth. So so here we have two of the faster growing region growing regions slowing down. Uh, around to the where the U.S. is in kind of that mid-teens. Uh, and that leaves the one market that I've seen recently mentioned a lot is India that, that continues to really have an outpaced growth rate. In this same Forrester report I was talking about, uh, they, they just came out with their APAC report. They called it the fastest grower for, for APAC. APAC, and they have it uh, pegged at forty-four percent Kager compounded annual growth rate over the next five years, which is which is pretty impressive. But it is starting at a much smaller base. Um, in the same report, and, and this is one I think you can get most of the highlights for free. It's kind of on one of those blog posts that they do. Um, they do say that it's starting out, and it's only about three percent the size of the Chinese market. So, um, but if you're a retailer and you're looking for growth. Uh, where we saw a lot of customers looking was China and Brazil. Looks like there's still big markets and you could grow there, but you're not going to have this tailwind of you know two to three x of U.S. growth. Looks like India is maybe a place to start looking at. Uh, Jason, I know you, you get a lot of kind of questions on this, and you guys are do a lot of global kind of thinking. What any thoughts from your side on that? I think people are starting to ask a lot more about India in terms of international brands and retailers that are looking for international expansion opportunities. And of course, the way everyone toe dips is with cross-border shipping. Um, and so, you know, quite a few people are offering goods in India via a cross-border shipping solution. But we haven't seen a lot of clients really jump into the Indian market with both feet. At the moment, we have a pretty big presence in India, and they almost exclusively serve indigenous brands in India, which are getting online for the first time and uh, really starting to offer e-commerce. And in much the same way we saw uh, the Alibabas of the world uh, look to leapfrog brick-and-mortar retail because there was no nationwide network of retailers in China. It feels like that's what's happening with some of the indigenous brands in, in India right now. But uh, it still feels early for international brands to be jumping in. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it's definitely kind of an interesting space to keep an eye on. I, w- I would remind everyone, you do have to think about all three of those markets slightly differently in that like, we're seeing – uh, put India aside for a second, Brazil and China, we're seeing those rates of growth slow down a little bit. But they're not slowing down because of market saturation or maturity of adoption or any of those things. Like it's it's these other macroeconomic trends that, you know, are very real and have an effect, um, but they could shift again and those markets could grow very quickly again. It's it's not as if they've hit some some equilibrium where it's going to be very hard to, to grow at fast rates moving forward. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Uh, speaking of hard to grow, I saw that uh, Sports Authority had to uh, file Chapter 11 this week. Yeah, never never good to see this. And it's kind of this drumbeat of bad retail news that we, we keep hearing. Um, so we had the Macy's store closings, Walmart, and then this bankruptcy um, and, you know, the the thing that I took away from it is they do expect to come out the other side of this uh, and but they're going to close 140 stores. So it's always hard to kind of go and say, 
you know, this is a restructuring. We're going to come out the other side, but we're going to close a third of our stores. I don't, I don't know how you do that unless there are stores that are really significantly underperforming. Um, sometimes in these things, in a lot of these omni-channel guys, the real estate has gotten attached to these stores and they own a lot of it. And um, that can be where a lot of the assets live is actually in real estate. So there may be a component of that. I'm not as familiar with their story as I am some of the others. Um, and I did think, you know, reading through the articles, um, you know, they had some some ungodly imbalance of assets and liabilities, something like a billion dollars in liabilities versus $50,000 in cash or something. It just kind of seemed um, you know, pretty grim kind of looking at it from that perspective. And I don't you know. I don't know what happened. Some, sometimes these guys just get levered up in the go-go days and, and it really catches up to them when they hit a blip. Um, this is where, you know, I – um, the Amazon thing's interesting. If you know, we talked in the show about them taking a fair chunk of all the growth in retail, and when you have some companies that are so levered, sure, you may say, "Well, losing a five percent share at Amazon, what, what's the big deal? It's not material." But it doesn't take much to tip over these kinds of companies that have so much leverage on their balance sheet. So it looks like there's an element of that too. Absolutely, and for sure, there's. There's big equipment components to Sports Authority that they almost certainly are losing to Amazon. You know, it, it's interesting. They would say, hey, we also, you know, had the our apparel encroached by all these people that got into athleisure. Um, you know, and so they talk about like Lululemon and Lucy taking business away from them. I'm, I'm less certain that they ever had that business to lose. I think one thing that's it's sort of interesting when you look at Sports Authority is a private equity firm uh, bought them in a leveraged buyout like 10 years ago. And so that they took on a lot of that debt as part of that acquisition. Ah. Um, and I think a lot of their store portfolio are leases. And one of the challenges with retail leases is they they can be under very onerous terms and they tend to be very long. And so when you have populations moving – and you had a store in a great location, and then you know that that community um, urbanizes and moves back downtown, and they move away from your store, and you're stuck in a 20 year lease. That can really be a burden. And so uh, it's possible. Like the happy version of this story is those 140 stores that are closing are stores that are you know no longer in the right location, and they're using Chapter 11 to break a bunch of leases that they would otherwise be stuck with. But you look back about the time they got acquired. They, they were the exact same size as Dick's Sporting Goods. Hmm. They had almost the same store count. They were both like $3 billion in total sales. Um, and uh, they both had about the same revenue per store. And, you know, this is a case where these guys did not get wholly eaten by Amazon. They got eaten by Dick's um, because Dick's has essentially doubled their business in that 10 years um, and – uh, are now twice as big as Sports Authority. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting to look at what Dix did versus Sports Authority uh, to achieve that growth. And, you know, I'll, I'll confess, I'm not sure I fully know all the distinctions, but I know if you talk to the Dix management, they would say that they much more aggressively invested in the stores and the store technology than Sports Authority did. Um, and that, you know, uh, because Sports Authority carried all that debt from that purchase, they had less capital to invest in the stores and their stores fell behind. And then, you know, customers started showing a preference for the new, newer, more modern stores with better technology to service customers. And that, you know, that just became this virtuous cycle for Dix that really put Sports Authority in a bad place. Yeah, 
I don't spend a lot of time in sports authorities. I, I go into them when I go into major cities. Um, we don't have any here. Um, the one thing I've noticed is Dick's did was very aggressive with the store within a store. So you go in and there's the Under Armour section and the Nike section and Adidas and stuff. And, and I don't believe sports authority was aggressive as that. That, that seems to have really responded to people with those brand preferences. Yep, absolutely. And those are often uh, very profitable for the host retailer because not only are those some of the more popular products that drive a bunch of revenue, but in many cases, Dick's literally leases the space for that shop and shop. And so they get rent on that space and they get a share of the the revenue from the sales in that shop. So it definitely can be a, a good piece of business when it's done right. Cool. Well, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without some Amazon tidbits. So kind of a quiet week from Amazon themselves. The The only thing I saw that they announced formally was this pretty interesting uh, kind of next generation of the Amazon Dash. And uh, everyone laughed at Dash when it came out, which I think is funny because I think there's actually it, it could be pretty big. Uh, and, and this is a really interesting implementation of it. So uh, what they've done is they've got one of those Brita filters. Uh, and these things are always a pain because it's always hard to remember to change the little filter. Well, what this does is itself, it has a dash technology built in there and it knows how many pores you've had or whatever the metric is. And it will go self-order a replacement filter. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of people get freaked out by this because they're like, okay, all this, you know, what happens when this thing just orders a hundred of them? There's the thing to remember with dash is there's always a, you, you can go into that auto order mode, but then there's also a review mode. Uh, and that's the, the Default. So by default, what happens is you get a message on your smartphone that says, hey, your Brita, your Brita filter looks like it could new, use a new filter. Uh, and then you say, OK, go ahead and order it. And it shows up in two days on your Prime account. So pretty neat to kind of start thinking about your your stuff, ordering more stuff for itself kind of a thing. You know, imagine, you know, the anything that's replenishable could go down this this path, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, I, I did buy a, a Brita pitcher. I, I, I don't need one, but it's going to be another uh, prop in my uh, in my office for 45 bucks. You know, I don't want to go too much into this, but it is fascinating trying to imagine a, a, a near future when like 40 percent of the things you need to buy can be purchased by smart devices. You know, it's interesting because Amazon is really driving this with the dash replenishment. But I actually think that this is one of the trends that could ultimately disrupt Amazon because if if we fast forward to a world in which all these smart devices in your home are taking care of all those mundane consumable replenishments for you, uh, you don't necessarily need Amazon and the everything store to be the fulfiller of all those items. A, like you don't need the super fast shipping because the device can anticipate when you're going to run out well in advance. And if you're not interacting with the company that's supplying those products at all, you'd be perfectly happy to have your devices host a reverse auction and get those things from whoever wants to be the lowest provider on any given moment. Or maybe you want to connect all those devices direct to the manufacturer. I, you know, I don't know that any of that's going to happen, but it just it seems to me that when we go from explicitly ordering stuff to implicitly getting stuff, that that's a pretty big paradigm shift, and there's definitely a chance for some of the incumbents to get disrupted there. Yeah, you know, does the infrastructure matter and and all that? So maybe Amazon worries about this, and they're trying to get in front of it by owning the, you know, the pipe as well as the the backend. Yep, and again, like even if the manufacturer wanted to fulfill all that stuff, they'd probably have to outsource most of the fulfillment to someone like an Amazon as their three PL at that point. Yeah, yeah. 
The other thing that was interesting on Amazon, and this wasn't out of Amazon proper, but uh, this was out of one of the Wall Street firms called Cowan and Company. Uh, and what they did is they did a survey, and they do this every every year, and they kind of change the focus of the survey. Um, and uh, this year, the focus was Amazon Prime Now, uh, which, which I've, I've been watching really closely. So Prime Now is the service where for $8, you can get things in an hour. It's available in 24 cities in the U.S., uh, Cowan did the math and they found that those 24 cities get you 48% of the U.S. population within that that one-hour delivery window, which is pretty interesting. I, I think a lot of retailers poo-poo the service, and I think they'd be surprised that Amazon has built one-hour delivery to about 50% of the U.S. population. So, so that was one kind of eye-opener. Um, the, other, the other way – the way I use the service is I don't pay the $8. I typically get enough uh, in there that I get it in the two- or three-hour window. That's fine for me. Um, they also did a survey, and I'm not exactly sure how they did this. They must have gone through the app kind of manually, uh, or maybe through uh, you know some kind of outsourced firm. But their estimate was that there's on average 10,000 SKUs available. Um, this is interesting because the last I'd heard a number on this was 3,000. So I do feel like they're expanding the inventory here. And again, a lot of people don't really track it because it's kind of hidden behind this app. Um, so what they did is they surveyed. Uh, so that was interesting. Just kind of recap. Uh, some of that was new, but some of it I already knew, like the 24 cities. Uh, but what they did is they surveyed uh, you know, about uh, over 1,000 kind of U.S. adults. And um, what they did is they asked them, you know, are you a prime member or not? And they got pretty high response rate. And then those folks that are prime, they started to dig into have they used Amazon Prime now and that kind of thing. So what they found was 25% of U.S. prime customers have tried Amazon Prime now. So that, that was uh, a pretty high adoption or trial rate. Um, of those people that had tried Amazon Prime now, 70% used it more than once a month and 24% used it weekly. And if I do the math on that, uh, I'm not a math genius. I think that's 6% that kind of tried it once in the month um, versus multiple times. So that, that 24% weekly is pretty interesting. And, and that's where when I talk to folks uh, that are using the service, they do start to get onto this kind of weekly pattern, um, especially if they have larger families where they're consuming, you know, a lot of milk, a lot of fruit, a lot of paper goods or bottled water, or that kind of thing. It starts to kind of track this this monthly thing, which is pretty interesting. I mean, weekly, which which starts to substitute out a lot of your grocery store things that you're buying. Uh, let's see. Um, in a lot of the cities, I think seven of the cities, they also do food deliveries. Uh, and they this survey found that 26% of people that had tried Amazon Prime Now did take advantage of uh, that service or some of the locally, local grocery options. Um, so they also have some things in there where you can get local grocery supplies. So if you have a small store that has gluten-free stuff or something like that, they're starting to carry not only Amazon items, but they'll actually go to the store and pick it up for you. Uh, the top four categories weren't a surprise. They're kind of what you would think. So it was groceries, personal care, household products. And maybe this one's a surprise, but electronics. Um, and you know, the report said that over $50 electronics are very popular on Amazon Prime now. And I think that's people that just kind of have a hankering for a Kindle or some headphones, or I, I don't know exactly um, you know what, but it, it's interesting to kind of think about that. So I, I thought there's some good data there, and it's interesting to see the adoption rate and the trend towards weekly on this program. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, you know I noticed the same week they announced a deal with Morrison's, which is a, a grocery store in the UK. You know the UK is the, the biggest e-commerce grocery market in the world, and 
through that deal, they're delivering all of Morrison's private label products in the, the version of Amazon Prime now they offer in the UK. So it seems like they're being very creative about trying to figure out how to get the complete assortment of, of products that people want for home delivery. Yeah. Another kind of quick topic to hit is augmented reality, virtual reality. Uh, you and I love this topic and some news over the last week uh, to inform people about. So first of all, HTC has opened up pre-orders for their unit called the, the Vive or Vive. I, I never know how to say that. I think Vive. Vive, okay. Uh, the Vive, uh, and uh, that looks really good. Microsoft HoloLens uh, is not even you know close to any kind of consumer edition, but they do have a developer edition coming out, uh, and they announced that's going live sometime in March. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then one I followed, another Wall Street firm called Macquarie, they actually held um, a conference uh, primarily for Wall Street folks. But it was interesting because not only did they have the key manufacturers there, they had a lot of the ecosystem startups that are starting to, to spawn up. A lot of these are in the entertainment uh, field. So doing sporting event broadcast or movies specifically designed, and then you have gaming. Uh, but they actually had a couple of the retail and, and other category folks there. Um, and, uh, the thing that I thought was neat about the report that came out of that was everyone was really blown away. Well, first of all, they started using this new kind of nomenclature that was new to me. They, they used VR mobile, which is like, um, they said the basic Oculus headset, the, um, that one from Samsung, whose name I always escape, uh, I always forget, but you know, the gear, was, uh, the gear, the gear and a couple other one. Uh, obviously Google, Google stuff to date is where you're just using the phone. They call that VR mobile. Uh, they, they then designated the other uh, headset, which is the HTC as a VR PC. Uh, and then they also said something about an Oculus toy box, which I'm not familiar with. I need to research more, but they, they were blown away by the immersion delivered by that. And part of it was, um, they called it room scale immersion with the HTC. You are able to get a, you can see where you are in the room and you get a better feel for that than you do with an Oculus, a plain Oculus or some of the more VR mobile. Uh, but then they also said the frame rates on some of these PCs that are coming out that are quote unquote, you know, VR ready are just amazing. They're using some high end, um, NVIDIA chip. I'm not an expert on this this graphic processing unit stuff, but evidently these chips are getting up up into supercomputer levels and can generate something like 120 frames per second, which is near real real time. Uh, and they say the immersion from that is is pretty mind blowing. So kind of excited to see where this is going, and and you can see it really having interesting applications. Yeah, I, it's going to be amazing. I'm really looking forward to having enough of those in the market that, you know, people can really start developing content and experiences for them. You know, for commerce, it's going to be interesting. I think I didn't mention it in the Mobile World Congress, but uh, uh, at least one company was uh, demonstrating a use case of a Visa wallet in a VR experience. Because obviously, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. kind of hard to type your credit card numbers in uh, in the VR world. So what do you do? You just like grab it out of your virtual wallet and sling it around with your hand kind of thing? Or that's what I understand. I haven't, I haven't gotten to see the demo yet, but but, I wonder uh, how it authenticates and does security. Yeah. uh, A lot of new experiences that are going to have to be figured out. I also wonder a lot of these things are looking into your eyes. So I wonder if there's a way to get some kind of a, almost like a retina scan or something to do security. Yeah. So Scott, you know, I know you and I are both continuing to get a lot of great feedback from the listeners. And one of the suggestions 
that has come up over and over again is folks are asking for reading material. And maybe there's an opportunity to create a new segment on the show for our book recommendations. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I get that question all the time. Um, and sometimes, you know, there, there's there's not a lot of e-commerce books out there or even retail, to be honest with you. So, so it's usually a struggle to find something in that genre. Um, but I do think there's a lot more general business books that, that a lot of the content applies to kind of what what you encounter in the world of e-commerce. Um, the one I wanted to talk about uh, is when I'm three quarters of the way through. So not a hundred percent through, but I think I can go ahead and call it. And um, just so everyone knows, so they don't turn off the podcast right here. Uh, every review we'll, we'll do will be totally spoiler free. Not that business books have these huge revelations in them, but, but I always hate it when, when there's some kind of a spoiler in there. Um, so what I'm reading right now is called Originals, and it's by Adam Grant, and it has a pretty lengthy foreword by Sheryl Sandberg, who is the uh, COO of Facebook. Um, and the subtitle of the book is How Nonconformists Move the World. Um, and, you know, the if I had just seen the this in the bookstore, I probably wouldn't have picked it up because I've read, you know, kind of the Steve Jobs story like 10,000 times at this point, and it kind of – that was my vibe from just kind of looking at the the sleeve uh, was that it was going to be kind of that kind of thing. Um, and it, it, it definitely is about people that step out of the norm and do really creative things. And there's some of the usual suspects in there. But what was really interesting to me is I'm I like yourself, am a data nerd. And there was a lot of really good data from um, the research that Adam Grant does. He's a professor uh, and does a lot of research into things and and had a very approachable way of presenting some data that I thought was, was really well done and um, kind of like in a Freakonomics kind of a way, very counterintuitive to what you would think. So, so, so that was really good, um, and uh, you know, I think it kind of broke the preconception I had about the book being just kind of a summary of biographies of people that we already kind of know about. The other preconception it really broke for me was when I ri- originally kind of picked up the book, I thought, all right, this will be good for startup folks to kind of like get them fired up and kind of more of the – the, the kinds of customers we have at Channel Advisor that are just starting their e-commerce business. We, we have this kind of bifurcation where we deal with a lot of larger enterprises. Uh, in fact, Kevin Ertel recommended this book over at Sur La Table. Uh, but then we also have some of these small kind of startup-y kind of folks. Uh, and my other preconception was that this would be good primarily for that startup-y kind of audience. So how do they scale it and how do they kind of you know, be a nonconformist and and fight the big guys kind of a thing. Um, what really surprised me about this is how they introduced the concepts uh, and some of the data that that shows you, uh, uh, without spoiling it, you know, how to approach some things. And then they show you how to use it inside larger companies. So kind of like an entrepreneur. And whenever I talk to any e-commerce folks that are in these larger businesses, that's a very much their role is to be the entrepreneur to help the business kind of go through a pretty serious change in the omni-channel world from a primarily offline world to a digital world. So so I actually ended up thinking it would be great for that kind of a, uh, you know, executive in the e-commerce world. So, you know, no spoilers, but I, I would strongly recommend this book. Uh, I would kind of give it an A plus uh, for folks in, in retail of any size and add it to the reading list. So I definitely would recommend this book to our listeners. Very cool. I actually already have it on my Kindle, uh, and I'm looking forward to breaking into it. Yeah, yeah. How about uh, you? Anything you want to recommend uh, for folks to to give a run through? 
Yeah, I would suggest a few things. Uh, the The first thing is actually just an article, the, a piece I found this week by Bert Helm on Slate. The title of the article is called The Amazon Marketplace Seller that says it has the Colombian cocaine of algorithm. And it's essentially this long feature about an Amazon seller called Pharmapax. Interesting story about this distributor that essentially got into selling goods on on uh, Amazon, and it goes into quite a bit of detail about some of the personalities and some of the the wins and losses that they've they've had uh, along their road to becoming a pretty meaningful sized business leveraging Amazon. So I, I found it pretty interesting, and I'll put a link in our show notes to the specific article. In terms of books. I'm actually a little behind. I'm reading Elon Musk's biography, which I think you have already read. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't want to spoil it, but they all die in the end. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm really enjoying it. I'm I'm only, you know, about 60 or 70 percent of the way through. Uh, and obviously we hear about Elon Musk in the news all the time. But, you know, I actually had kind of forgotten about his PayPal years and frankly, how visionary PayPal was when it first launched. And then, you know, like they weren't able to get market adoption, so they had to kind of pivot and and uh, you know become a sort of an eBay uh, infrastructure. And you know now it feels like the the company's back to their original vision. And you just look at everything that that he's done, and it's it's fascinating to sort of compare and contrast him to some of the the great entrepreneurs of the past. And you think of like the Howard Hughes of the world, and it just seems like a pretty cool story that that definitely has some e-commerce elements to it yeah and just his leadership skill the um you know the, the book goes it, it reproduces a fair number of memos uh that you know in their entirety and, and i found that just interesting just kind of like the the bluntness and the transparency at the same time was was really pretty interesting to kind of see his leadership skills there yeah absolutely I did also recently finish another book that I wanted to mention that's a little bit more wonky directly in the retail space. So this book is entitled Extraordinary Experiences, What Great Retail and Restaurant Brands Do. And it's by Denise uh, Leon, who's a big brand marketing consultant. And she has a very popular book out called What Great Brands Do. And so this is her second book. And where the first book is very general about best practices in branding and and what the common denominator of brands are that become love brands. This book does case studies of seven businesses, and it's three retailers and four restaurants, and really follows the specific practices and forks in the road that, that these businesses took to outperform the market and become much more successful. And so the, the three retail case studies are HEB, which is a grocery retailer, uh, Costco, uh, and a really innovative furniture retailer called Perch. You know, I have to say, I, I really enjoyed the book. I wasn't as interested in the restaurant stories, although, you know, there are certainly things to be taken away. But if you wanted to read it quickly, you you could read the introduction and then you could read the three case studies on the three retailers and, and uh, get a lot out of it. So I found it very interesting. Is this kind of like the whole Ron Johnson theory that, you know, stores will move from product to you know experiential kind of like the apple stores is that kind of the the uh, slightly the whole like uh, her her spin would be a little bit more that stores have to evolve from being exclusively about selling goods in each visit right and so you know it's talking a lot about stores evolving beyond being exclusively a point of uh, purchase 
touch point to being an important brand touch point. And so, you know, sometimes creating lifetime value is about offering things in that retail visit that aren't necessarily oriented towards getting something in the cart in that specific visit. And so like clearly one of those things is is to enhance the brand experience of the environment, but it's also a lot of frankly like inventory decisions and pricing decisions and just just your philosophy about how you're servicing the customer if you're you're more focused on using every touch point to build loyalty and lifetime value versus using every uh, touch point to to sell something. Sounds good. I will add it to my list. Well, Scott, that's probably all the time we have for this week. So I want to thank everyone for listening. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 